Thank you, Chrissy. Praise team. Let me pray for us. Lord, you do hear us and see us. You're the revealer of all of our hearts. You are the Lord. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would search our hearts now and that you would speak through this living word, Holy Spirit. We thank you that we can come to you, Lord Jesus, because you came to us, gave your life and shed your blood, and we come through Jesus and his shed blood. We thank you that the door is open. We have access with freedom because of what you've done for us. So, Lord, help us to see that the story is about you and to praise you today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking at the book of Daniel, and in each of the first uh, six chapters of the book of Daniel, there is an epic uh, episode where there's a miracle in each of the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. And so in this particular chapter, we're going to see once again another miracle um, as Nebuchadnezzar is really quite temperamental. He's really got quite a temper, and he makes a, a real threat here. He has this dream, and he's not going to have an, an interpretation of the dream, and he's threatening to, to take all the leaders and to kill them. And so our outline this morning, everything's going to begin with a D, and we're just going to go through the passage. I'm actually not going to read the first 30 verses. I'm going to go through, and we'll kind of break it down as we go through the chapter. Shakespeare once said in Henry IV, uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. And we see that for Nebuchadnezzar here, who dreamed a dream. And so the first D here is the drama begins with a dream. And so in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 2, we are told, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. And then in verses 2 to 9, we have the king's demand. And it's a harsh demand, and it's repeated twice. So here's the demand. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream. My spirit is troubled to show the dream. And then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, and interestingly in Daniel, this is one of the few books of the Bible, where it actually moves from Aramaic, and from chapter 2 here up through chapter 7 is in Aramaic. And so now we're moving into the Aramaic. He says, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins." This is persecution. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honors. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certain, certainty you're trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you sh can show me its interpretation. So some commentators think that Nebuchadnezzar actually forgot the dream, and that's why he's demanding that they show the dream and its interpretation, but we don't really know. Uh, that, that's a conjecture. But we do know that the word is firm. Chapter 5 
or verse 5 there, that the magicians and chanters and sorcerers, they, and here's the interesting, you know, as I was saying, in each chapter, there is a, um, uh, basically a big epic uh, drama that's going on. And what you're going to see is that you have all of these incredible people, magicians and chanters and sorcerers, and they can't, t- they, they can do nothing. They can't give the king the interpretation because our God is greater. Our God can, their God can't. And that's what you're seeing here throughout the book of Daniel. And each chapter is going to kind of bring that out to a head. And so they are told, if you don't interpret this, you're going to be torn limb from limb. Your houses are going to be laid in ruins. But the good news is, if you do interpret the dream, (laughs) there's rewards of gifts and great honor. Not exactly what the wise men of Babylon were bargaining for. And so they plead with him twice, just tell us the dream and we'll give the interpretation. Like, nobody can can do what you're asking us to do. And, And basically, the king's saying, you're just trying to buy time. And so verses 10, 11, we see the difficulty. And the difficulty is that the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. That's meant to be irony because there is a man on earth. He's going to be led by the Lord to do it. For no great and powerful king is asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. They're basically telling the king that, look, what you're asking for is impossible. It's irrational to do such a thing. And so what we're seeing, if you just remember, just peel back and get the bigger picture. Daniel chapter 1 begins with Nebuchadnezzar taking the, the vessels from the Jerusalem temple and taking them to his temple a clear flexing of the muscles. My God is greater than your God. And so that's what the book is. The rest of the book is actually going to show you not true. And so it's a contest, and each chapter is a contest. And whenever Yahweh gets mocked or seemingly defeated, okay, it's never the end of the story. It's always just the beginning, Think of the book of Exodus. There were 10 plagues to remind Pharaoh that each one of your gods is to be rebuked in Egypt because Yahweh is God over all of your gods. Think of Elijah on Mount Carmel, and he says, how long will you go limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, worship him. And if Baal, then worship him. And and does God win that contest? He always wins the contest. How about David and Goliath? That's a battle of the gods. Maybe we don't see it as that, but we're told in 1 Samuel 17 that the Philistine Goliath said to David when he saw him, he said, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's. He will give you into our hand. You see, here we know God is up to something good. 
And as the drama is brewing, we are told of the difficulty and the impossibility of the matter. But we know that nothing is too difficult for God. His arm is not too short. And what's impossible with man is not impossible with God. So we say, I believe, help my unbelief. So let's see what God's doing. So verse 12 and 13, we have the decree. And the decree is because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. And you're probably wondering, if you're like me, you read Daniel chapter 1, and it ends with, we're, we're told Daniel and his friends are 10 times wiser, they're better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom, but now they're just getting the memo of the decree, and oh, by the way, you're literally on the chopping block. You see, Daniel and his friends are just uh, teenagers. Commentators think they're about 18 years old. And so even if they are better and wiser than all the enchanters and all the magicians in Babylon, they weren't GS 14 or 15, okay? They were, as Boyce says, low man on the pole. They weren't even consulted. They're not part of the original inner circle that's called into the king to give a demand, the king's demand about the dream. They, they know nothing about this. They are far from that conversation, and at this point in Daniel's life, his influence is, as Boyce says, it amounts to a hill of beans, not even a hill of beans. Yet they have enough power and rank to get them exterminated. That's what's, on, that's what's in front of them. They are being included in the death sentence, and they are included in death row. And so now Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in big trouble. So in verses 14 to 16, we see the discretion of Daniel. Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him, the time, appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Now, you have to love the way that Daniel has such discretion and wisdom around the king's men. The last chapter, it was obvious that the chief eunuch, the chief of the eunuchs, Asphanes, he respected Daniel, and Daniel respected him, and his request was done in such a way that it didn't risk Asphanes' life or job. And here we see the same thing. Daniel reels in Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, and says, hey, what's going on here? Fill me in. Why is this decree so urgent? And Arioch opens up and tells Daniel what's going on behind closed door. And Daniel, in his discretion, makes a daring move, what he did in verse 10. He requests the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation of, to the king. This is Daniel's version of saying, let's roll on the plane. We're going to die. Let's roll. Let's go and tell the king and set a time for the interpretation because I've read the Pentateuch, I'm a good Jew, and I remember there was a guy named Joe, Joseph who he interpreted the dreams of the cupbearer and this other guy, and then he got promoted and he interpreted the Pharaoh's dreams, and so I have a God that can interpret dreams. And you may have all the wisdom of all these magicians and sorcerers and all this stuff, but I'm going to die, and so I'm stepping out to see if I can save everybody's life. Let's roll. And so Daniel has his let's roll time in his life where 
for such a time as this, he's been placed right there. And so Daniel goes, and he does this. And in verse 17 and 18, we have desperate prayer. Daniel went to his house and made the matter known. Can you imagine being Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's companions? Uh, There's something I need to tell you. (laughs) Pray real hard, (laughs) because you too are about to be killed. And I have set a time to speak to the king. (laughs) You want to talk about some fervent prayer. They told him to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And so we pray more fervently according to our desperation, right? I mean, no man can do what the king is demanding, and hence the prayers. And notice, we revert back to Jewish names. Remember what those names mean? Let me just remind you. Hananiah, uh, Mishael and Azariah. Mishael, who's like God. Hananiah, Jehovah's gracious. Azariah, Jehovah's my helper. I mean, they're pleading, Lord, who is like God? Who is gracious? Who is my helper? Please deliver us. Remember our names, <laughs> please. And so, call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. Psalm fifty fifteen. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me, Psalm 138. But do not abandon, O Lord, the work of your hands. God knows what he's going to do, but we pray that he would not abandon the work of his hands. Does this mean that every time God's going to split the seas and and, and answer miraculously. Let me just give you Hebrews 11. The guys at the back half of the chapter are just as faithful as the guys in the front half. Okay? And Isaiah saw in two by faith. And Peter was delivered from the sword by faith. James didn't get delivered from the sword, and he died by faith. So sometimes by faith, God miraculously opens the doors, and sometimes God's people don't get delivered. And so we don't say, because this guy's in prison in Turkey, well, he must be in some sin. He needs to repent, right? He's being faithful, and sometimes that happens. But we're pleading in desperate prayer that God would miraculously deliver him. And we leave it in the Lord's hands. And lo and behold, in verse 19, the dilemma is solved. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. So what does Daniel do? Bless the God of heaven. And now we have a declaration of thanks in verses 20 to 23. This is Daniel's psalm. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. There's a good one to emphasize this coming Tuesday. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness, and the light dwells within him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we've asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. And so Daniel gives God the glory for his deliverance. Do you? Spurgeon was once sharing the gospel with a lady, and she started to understand the beauty of the gospel. And she cried out, oh, Mr. Spurgeon, if the Lord saves me, he shall never hear the end of it. May he never hear the end of it, literally. Amen? 
You see, this psalm highlights the wisdom of God and the sovereignty of God. To God belongs wisdom and might. He's the all-wise God. He never needs counseling. He doesn't have to set up an appointment. Paul just praises him at the end of Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. He doesn't, he's not angry about that. He's not upset about that. He's not wanting to pry into the mysteries. He wants to adore him and praise him for his majestic wisdom that he can't get his arms around. That's how we should view the wisdom of God, with glory and wonder and worship. That's what Paul does. Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? We don't counsel God. Aren't you thankful? Because we give bad advice. Like, hey, you don't need to go to the cross. And Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. I mean, we, we give bad counsel. And then he, we realize that our God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and set up, sets up kings. It doesn't mean don't vote, folks. Somebody came to me last week and thought maybe that was where I was going with the message. Does that mean we shouldn't vote? No, vote. Of course you should vote. But the lot is cast into the lap, and every decision is from the Lord, Proverbs 16, 33. So yes, you need to vote, but it's God who's going to do the removing and setting up of kings. Dale Ralph Davis, who's one of my favorite commentators, in his commentary on Daniel, he says, kings and kingdoms, presidents and dictators, democracies and, and tyrannies and monarchies come and go and enter the landfill of history. That's what God does over time. And then he tells a story in his commentary that when the Roman uh, emperor Julian, who really hated Christians, and he was uh, on the throne from 332 to 363, he was mortally wounded in a war with the Persians. And I love Dale Raph Davis because he's a historian. And, and he says, while Ju Julian's expedition was in progress, one of Julian's followers asked a Christian at Antioch what the carpenter's son was doing, mocking, you know, Christians. This is what the Christian replied. The maker of the world, whom you call the carpenter's son, is employed in making a coffin for the emperor. As we like to say when I was in Brooklyn, kaboom, <laughs> kaboom, lightning bolt. That's what God does. He's in charge, not us. Now, you have to love how this drama unfolds. There is a huge difference. I want you to see the difference in verse 24 to 30 between Arioch and Daniel. Tell me if you can notice the difference between these two characters in the story. So when you get to verse 24... Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and, and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king its interpretation. Then, Daniel brought in, or then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah, you know, I have found him, <laughs> a man who will make known to the king and its interpretation. The king de declared to Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar 
What will be in the latter days? Your dreams and the visions of your head as you lay in the bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what will be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. And so we see a big difference between these two characters, do we not? Ariok claims to have found among the exiles a man who will make known the king and to the king his interpretation. I mean, isn't he special? I found him. In reality, it was Daniel who found you, Ariok. See, Ariok's all about including himself in the story, and the difference between him and Daniel is the contrast. Daniel's all about deflection deflecting any glory, any wisdom that would be to himself, and he gives it all to God. And at the end of the day, are we an Arioch or are we a Daniel? Do you look for ways to elevate yourself, to let other people know about your accomplishments, what you have done, or do you look for ways to downplay yourself, diminish self, and direct praise to God? Daniel's relentless. I mean, his conversation is full of God, isn't it? And he's giving God the glory. Now, if you're wondering where the story of Daniel, this story, what does this have to do with Jesus and me and the Lord's table? Let me try to connect the dots as we come to this table of grace this morning. First of all, the Old Testament is about example. It's more than that, but don't don't minimize that. It is about example. We are to imitate the pattern of good works that we see. And is not Daniel a great model of both piety, of prudence, of prayers, his psalm of thanks, his unpretentiousness, and it all leads to his promotion. We should model that, but there's more. God has promised that through Abraham's offspring, all the families of the earth should be blessed. And we're told in Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. And so I am part of that. That promise is now mine, and it's yours if you're in Christ. That means the families of the world are being blessed through you because I believe in Genesis 12 because I'm in Christ, and Christ is the ultimate seed, but me as his follower in Christ, now I am also giving blessing to the world. And so as, Daniel's, as Daniel does that, as we do that, we are called the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Daniel saved the lives of all these other pagan enchanters, sorcerers, and magicians in Babylon. Through his daring act of faith and through God revealing it to him, he blessed the world by saving these people's lives. God used Joseph that way during the famine to save the Israelites and the Egyptians. God used Paul when he's caught on a ship in a storm. And an angel comes and tells him what's going to happen And he's using Paul to save everybody on that ship. And when they're about to jump off the ship, he tells them, you you got to stay on the ship. If you want to be saved, stay on the ship. If you get off the ship, it's over. (laughs) So may the Lord use us for good as we are salt of the earth. Now, ultimately, Daniel is a pointer to someone who can save better than he ever did. And so ultimately, we see that the offspring is Christ, that all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham's offspring. Well, we're told in Galatians 3.16 
Now, the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. And so this ultimately is Jesus is the one who saves us from sin. And so Jesus, when he was born, guess who came to see him? Magi, like these magicians here in this chapter. They come from the east, they follow the star, and when they get to Jesus with their gifts, what do they do? They bow down and they worshiped him. Who is this Jesus? We are told who this Jesus is in Colossians 2. He's the one that Daniel was praying to, crying out to wisdom for. Colossians 2, where Paul prays for the church, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be strengthened, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Here it is. Which is Christ, in whom or in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All that the astrologers and enchanters and magicians are trying to find out and figure out. I have the answer for you this morning. It's in Colossians 2, 3. In him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wouldn't it be nice to know the future? Wouldn't it be nice to know what's going to happen someday? Wouldn't it be nice? I have something for you. It's called the book of Revelation. There's 22 chapters, and most of it is still telling us of things that haven't yet come to happen yet. He's coming back. He's going to save his people. He's going to restore us. He's going to renew us. There's going to be a new heavens and new earth right here, and we're going to commune with him face to face, and we're going to have a big feast. I promise, because it's a promise from his word. And this table right here is a shadow and a very real foretaste, a little sampling of what's to come. And so we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, even at this supper. So come and enjoy this feast. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you do rule and reign. We thank you that you are coming again. We thank you that you're ruler over all the kings of the earth, and we ask that you would rule over our own hearts. Because you are God, we follow you, and we worship you. And we turn and repent from all these lesser glories and lesser things that so easily enchant our hearts. We come running to you afresh. Meet us at your table, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.